This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, August 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor announces the Reskill Mississippi campaign and speaks out about a lawsuit from legislative leaders over his July vetoes. Then it, it's it's actually not a hard virus to beat. We've just chosen not to beat it. In an excerpt from our At Issue special, Dr. Thomas Dobbs gets candid about school openings in Mississippi. Plus, in our book club, a young teenager accidentally finds himself in the midst of the civil rights movement and takes up the cause despite arrest after arrest after arrest. This is Mississippi Edition on NPB Think Radio. I am not willing to play political games at the expense of the public health and safety of the men and women who go into that building across the street. I don't think that it makes sense at this time to bring them back. And if it is not safe, I don't think we ought to put any of them back in there um, in that fishbowl because we saw when one person has it, it can go to 30 or 40 or 50 very, very quickly. And that's not something that, uh, given where we are today, uh, makes a lot of sense. That was Governor Tate Reeves yesterday discussing his public health concerns over allowing a community of men and women to return to business as usual. His comments come at a time when many school districts are weighing the risks of on-campus learning due to transmission of the coronavirus and when some districts have already seen cases pop up in their schools, forcing dozens of students to quarantine. But Reeves isn't talking about the men and women and children who are poised to enter schools in the next two weeks. He's talking about the men and women of the state legislature. In early July, on the heels of the historic flag bill, an outbreak occurred in the Capitol that resulted in at least 40 Capitol personnel contracting COVID-19. Now, after a month-long hiatus, the legislature wants to return to address CARES Act needs and deal with a number of vetoes the governor made last month. In addition, legislative leaders are planning to file suit over the vetoes, including the controversial education budget bill veto, questioning their constitutionality. Reeves, in return, questions the leader's motives. I find it exceptionally odd that um, the, the leader of the House Education Committee has said that it was a mistake leaving out the school recognition program and that they could have easily fixed that, but then yet they're going to sue to say, I don't have the authority to actually line item veto it. I find that exceptionally odd, and so I'm interested to see uh, what their logic is there. The other thing is, if you'll recall, in the, um, in the budget that spent CARES Act money uh, through the State Department of Health, uh, there, was a, there was a several uh, individual projects uh, that, quite frankly, were earmarks, one of which was an earmark for a hospital uh, in Tate County. It's a hospital that hadn't been open in two years. Not only have they not treated any COVID patients, they hadn't treated any patients uh, during the life of this pandemic, but yet there's a connected legislator 
who wants to throw in $2 million for his hospital to try to get a deal done. Um, I, I don't think that makes sense. I don't think uh, the taxpayers of Mississippi ought to be participating in that. Reeves says a special session would eventually be required to settle all the matters, including a budget for the Department of Marine Resources. But while Reeves reserves a large supply of caution regarding the return of the legislature, he says leaders should assume and assess risk when it comes to school openings. There are risks to opening schools. We know that. I don't want, to, I don't want anyone to think that there is not risk for, the, for kids going back to school. But for some, it seems that you're willing to recognize and admit that there is risk to kids going back in school, but completely ignore the risks that are associated with kids not going back to school. And the fact of the matter is is that uh, I, as the, the decision maker, um, I guess, although um, the reality is that every, you know, we, live in a, we live in a state in which we have decided to give great autonomy to our local school boards and our local superintendents, they certainly know uh, their populations much better than, than anyone in Jackson does. Uh, and we've got to, we trust them with the education of our kids every single day and every single month and every single year. Um, we've, got to, we've got to hope that, they, uh, that the plans that they have provided us, that they are actually uh, adhering to them. In those counties where we thought transmission was at a rate that it was, that it was so high, uh, that it wasn't safe to put those 7th through 12th graders back in school, uh, we shut down the buildings. Said you couldn't open, you couldn't open. and that's what we did. Uh, we didn't do it for all kids uh, because we don't think we should treat every community exactly the same. Reeves says part of assuming the risk is that a large portion of Mississippians have been economically challenged through the need to stay home with school-aged children. Uh, about 90% of Mississippians have been in and out of work for, um, for the entirety of this. Um, some of them certainly didn't work during the shelter in place, which lasted about two weeks in Mississippi. And so there's no doubt that, that in our uh, public schools there are going to be risk uh, associated with uh, opening schools. We know that. Uh, we also know that there's risk sitting in this room right now. There's also risk um, for kids not going back to school. And so what we've got to do as leaders, in my opinion, is we've got to figure out a way to manage and mitigate as many risks as possible. And I believe that the plan that we have in place uh, puts us in a position whereby uh, we are best managing that risk and best mitigating that risk, uh, not only for our teachers but for our students and, quite frankly, for the, the population at large. To address the economic challenges of the pandemic, Reeves is also launching a new workforce program to address skills training. Reeves says the Reskill Mississippi Initiative will help those out of work find new avenues to financial stability. While we are in the midst of a public health crisis, we are also fighting this disease on an economic front. Hundreds of thousands of Mississippians have been laid off during this pandemic. Countless Mississippi employers are struggling to make ends meet. I believe that Reskill Mississippi may be able to help some of those who are hurting. In May, my Commission on Economic Recovery recommended that CARES Act funds be utilized for workforce training efforts to help displaced Mississippians. As a result, the State Workforce, workforce Investment Board, led by our Chairman Patrick Sullivan, made a recommendation to the Mississippi Legislature for those efforts. Patrick is here today and will discuss the program in more detail shortly. 
I want to remind everyone, the funding for this program was passed by the legislature, which made the Mississippi Department of Employment Security the fiscal agent and our state's four local workforce areas the administrators. I give you all this background to say that this has truly been a collaborative effort. Reskill Mississippi is an effort to utilize these CARES Act funds to not only get Mississippians back to work, but to get them skills training that will help them work in even better jobs than they may have had before COVID-19. Patrick Sullivan leads the State Workforce Investment Board. He says the Rescale brand will be one Mississippians will quickly recognize. What you'll start to see across the state, and this is what we want people to know, we'll start, you'll start to see that Reskill Mississippi brand. Uh, we encourage people to visit reskillms.com. If you have family members, if you have friends, uh, young people, adults that are out of work looking for opportunities or even lo- in work looking for better opportunities, in my opinion, at this point, I don't know if there's anybody in Mississippi not impacted by COVID. So the point of this program is to help people and for people to know about it and know about the opportunities, there must be a massive outreach effort. Uh, And that's what Reskill MS is about. The program will also work closely with public colleges to provide skills training to those entering the workforce. Residents can visit reskillms.com for more info. Coming up in an excerpt from our At Issue special, Dr. Thomas Dobbs gets candid about school openings in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The question of when and how to return to school is a question many communities are grappling with during this unsure period of high virus transmission. Despite only issuing a limited order to delay the start of class for 7th through 12th grade students in eight counties, Governor Reeves says if he were leading a local school district, he would delay. If I were running a school district, uh, I I would personally uh, not open that school district until um, August the 17th, maybe even August the 24th, depending on uh, what the numbers look like in my counties. And that's just a blanket statement. If I were running a school district, I would not open until August the, 27th, August the 17th at the earliest and probably August the 24th. Last night in a special edition of At Issue, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs talked one-on-one with our Desiree Frazier about how the state is faring with coronavirus crisis and what it means for schools. You know, we're seeing a lot of different indicators that are showing kind of worrisome signs. Uh, Of course, we're still seeing pretty high case numbers, without a doubt. We're 1,200 plus today. and which is which is less than we've seen in some previous days. So, but we still, if we look at the date of onset, one of the graphs on our on our website, you can see we still have sort of an upward trajectory. So, hopefully, we're seeing a plateau. But still, it's a lot of cases out there. Um, if we combine that with other indicators, such as the percent positivity in some of our lab testing, which is which is pretty high, and I know people have talked about that. And then, if we look at the uh, nursing homes with the number of outbreaks we're having, we have over 200 outbreaks in long-term care settings. 
including assisted living and personal care homes and, and nursing homes. And then the stress on the healthcare system in the hospitals, we have the highest number of ICU bed utilization today that we've ever had. And so we're really just kind of running at the top of our capabilities with health with the health system, and then we keep piling on new cases. So we've just got a lot of things that are going to bear watching. What does that mean for the state if these cases continue to rise at the rate that they are? Well, there's multiple impacts that we'll see. Um, certainly, the health system has a certain ability to absorb patients. And we've, we've taken some efforts and we work, work closely with hospitals to try to add that surge capacity. And we have, to some degree, been successful in that we've absorbed more intensely sick patients, a lot of whom require the ventilators and, and respiratory support. Um, so there's going to be a limit to that, and, and staffing is going to be the most severe limit. So we're, we're looking at innovative ways trying to work around that. But probably one of the more acute issues is going to, that's going to affect us, um, obviously we talked about the nursing homes and the deaths and, and all that, um, which, which is just so tragic, but schools. Trying to open schools in the setting of, you know, the highest per capita rate of coronavirus in the country and, and, and moving kids into a school setting where transmission is quite possible and we don't really have a good sense of, I mean, this is, this is a unique situation where we haven't seen countries before open up schools when they had this level of transmission in the community. So are we going to be able to keep schools open is a real question and uh, for those that have, have opened and are opening soon. Well, you have said that you didn't think schools should open, but since we're on that trajectory, every school has to make sure that they go by those guidelines strictly. Even if they go by those guidelines, will they still see outbreaks? Because we do have outbreaks right now. Yeah, so um, the schools who haven't started yet, I would like to say um, uh, avail yourself of the opportunity to delay a little bit. Um, Still seems like a pretty good idea. Um, and certainly the Department of Health is supportive of uh, schools pushing back starting a little bit for in-person. You know, online, certainly that, that's great. But for, you know, other school districts in the country, I mean, in, in the state, you know, please consider pushing back a little bit because it's bad right now. We just, we just have, you know, started the, the mask mandate across the state, and maybe we'll start to see some benefit from that. Um, but, you know, we are going to see cases and outbreaks in schools. Uh, if we look at what's happened in Corinth, um, they haven't had outbreaks really in the school in the sense that there's been transmission there. But it looks like they've had, I think, 10 people now or 10, 10 uh, of students in, in, in the school setting. And over 100 kids are on quarantine. It's going to continue to grow just because there are kids in the community who had coronavirus and just came to school. So it's going to be a, it's a real challenge, and, and it's going to be hard to keep schools operational. And you said there's five schools right now that do have cases of coronavirus. Right. Districts. Yeah, there's five. In five different counties, we have schools that have uh, coronavirus cases in them. Um, not so much that there are outbreaks in the sense that it's transmission, but kids come into school with coronavirus, and it's just inevitable. And in terms of quarantining, how many students is this affecting? Well, we're only aware of the, the number really have a sense from from Corinth, and obviously that number is changing very rapidly. Um, we don't have a good sense from all the others yet, but it's highly variable between different situations. We consider someone to be a close contact to coronavirus if they've spent 15 minutes within a six-foot radius of that person, such that like if you're in a school setting and you're sitting next to them um, within that, that sort of space, then we would consider you a contact. Or if you're at, you know, band or whatever, 
then those folks are going to need to be quarantined, and that can add up pretty quickly. The other challenge, though, is unless we're really careful and know exactly where each student sits at every moment, if we don't know who's interacted with that child or that teenager, then the whole class needs to be quarantined. That was Dr. Thomas Dobbs with our Desiree Frazier on our special edition of At Issue. Dobbs also issued a simple final message for viewers and listeners as the state continues to fight widespread community transmission. it's, It's actually not a hard virus to beat. We've just chosen not to beat it. Uh, um, if, if we'll just wear a mask in public, if we will um, keep separated from folks and not go to social events, we won't have the virus. I mean, if it doesn't have a way to skip from one person to the other, it can't spread. It'll burn itself out in 10 days. So please, as we look to get back to school, just don't do anything you don't have to. Um, don't let your kids do anything they don't have to. Follow those simple rules, but it's just, I don't know why, it's just so very difficult for us to do it. If you'd like to hear more from our special edition of At Issue, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus or look for the At Issue podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Coming up in our book club, a young teenager accidentally finds himself in the midst of the civil rights movement and takes up the cause despite arrest after arrest after arrest. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. Join me on Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast about the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. And of course, all of MPB's other great podcasts are there too. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Coming August 1st to your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In May 1961, Hezekiah Watkins was 13 years old. He and a friend, curious about buses of Freedom Riders arriving in Jackson, went down to the bus station to see what it was all about. In a matter of minutes, Watkins was under arrest and sent to the state penitentiary at Parchman. It was an inauspicious start to activism, as we learn in Watkins' book, Pushing Forward. We got on our bicycles and we rode to the uh, bus station. My friend pushed me inside of the bus station as a joke. And after being pushed inside, I turned to run outside. But before I could make my complete turn, the police officer put his hand on my shoulder and asked me why was I in there. And he told me to sit down and I did. And he yelled for other officers to come over. I got another one over here, as he yelled out. And you could hear the footsteps of the officers running to my location. How scared were you? Ooh, I I was real scared, especially when I saw the other officers. They ran over. One told me to sit in a chair. I did. And they asked me two questions your name and your birthplace. I gave them my name, and just so happened I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just born there, that's it. I told them that, and they said, okay, yeah, he's one. So they thought you came from Milwaukee Milwaukee, to participate in this. Right. 
and that was the first time you were arrested. You were sent to Parchman, which is no place for a young boy, a 13-year-old. You were mistreated. The food was stolen. You were molested. A horrendous experience for you. And yet you still went on to become a freedom rider and an activist, and you were arrested 100 times. I can't even imagine. And that's what I'm told. Now, I never did keep up with the time, the number of times, but I can tell you this. I was arrested three times in one day here in Jackson and was released just like that. Arrested and released. Arrested and released. I do recall those three arrests in one day. Did you spend any nights or days in jail? Oh, yes. Yes, plenty plenty, plenty nights uh, right here in, in Jackson. I think the longest might have been 30 days. 30-plus days. What did you do as a protester or an activist? What situations were you involved with? And if you were arrested that many times, why did you continue to participate? You know, that's a good question, ma'am, because my mom is no longer with me, and we had a, we, my family, and I had a little get-together several years ago, and my oldest brother brought to my attention he asked me that I realize the danger that I was putting my mother in, and it never crossed my mind till he mentioned it. And I looked back at what could have happened to her. You may have done things differently if you had thought about it. If I that. had thought, yes, if, if the thought had hit me that my mom was in danger that I believe I would have done things a little different. The only thing happened was she lost her job. Uh, She was a cook. The owner went to her and told her that I needed to stop, and if I didn't, uh, he was going to fire her, and she told me it was my decision. uh, But if she had put it to me in a different way, I probably would have stopped. Well, I really felt though I was making a difference. I could see a difference being made. We was able to get 85-year-old individuals who couldn't read, who couldn't write, but they wanted to register. They wanted to become voters. They wanted to do things. And uh, it just made me want to do more uh, after seeing them being harassed by the police officers and others. It just put a burning sensation inside of me, and I had to keep moving. The book is pushing forward. Hezekiah Watkins is the author, and you're just truly are a living history book, and I thank you so much. Well, the pleasure was mine, and thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.